2, uh, Nehemiah chapter 2, page 580 in your pew Bible. And have that open in front of you. Most of us, I'm sure, have heard the saying, haste makes waste. I've certainly learned that lesson the hard way in life. I can remember years ago when our boys were growing up, they were best of friends and worst of enemies, depending on what day, what time of the day it was. And on this particular day, they were annoying each other and they were provoking each other to anger. And I remember intervening and I started to address the one that I had observed in saying and doing things that were certainly inappropriate and he was misbehaving. So I pulled him aside, and I mean I gave him the riot act. And uh, peace of my mind, I informed him that he would do things like, you'll never play a video game till you're 40 years old, and, you know, those kind of ridiculous threats. I said, you'll never drive my car someday when you're older. No, you know, all those kinds of things. And uh, then after, the problem was, after I dealt with him, is it became obvious to me that I had, in a sense, conducted a trial without even calling in any witnesses. I had reached a conclusion and taken action based on that conclusion without really looking at what was going on, taking some thought as to what would be the right way of responding here. And I remember being responding only out of my impatience, only out of my desire <clears throat> to eliminate something I saw as being a problem. I no longer wanted to be a problem, and I realized I was the problem on that situation. And isn't it true that we've seen that in many ways in life, that something, a problem presents itself? And rather than giving some careful thought before we just dive in and do something about it, we sometimes make things worse. I've been known to take something that doesn't work and take it apart, not knowing anything about it, but just trying to figure out why is it not working. And without consulting the repair manual or anything else that would guide me, uh, particularly something in my car a while ago, uh, I remember that there was a light or something not working, and so I'm taking this thing apart, trying to figure out what was wrong with this thing. It's not, and next thing you know, I snap something, not realizing it was screwed on there, rather than think it just snaps in. You, know, you, you do things like that, you're like, why didn't you just take your time and look at it carefully? And then you lead to nothing but patient, impatient frustration is often the way we deal with things that are problems. Well, again, it is tempting to make speedy responses to problem situations around us without giving any first deliberative thought as to what is the best action to take in this particular situation. And obviously some situations, I admit, require immediate action and no thinking. Like, for example, if you smell gas, don't stop and think. Just get out of the house, call 911 or the gas company. If you have a fire, obviously you don't sit there and say, well, hmm, wonder what we should be doing here. You know, let's, let's consult somebody. No, you just deal with it quickly. But there are some challenging problems that are best addressed after we devote some time to considering what are my options here and what is really needed in this particular situation. I need to really carefully think through what I'm going to do about it. And sometimes we need to be aware of what the consequences would be before we move ahead with our action plan. There's actually a a good proverb that summarizes that phrase, haste makes waste. In Proverbs 21, verse 5, says this, 
the plans of a diligent person lead surely to advantage. But everyone who is hasty comes surely to poverty. In other words, they might have a great idea, they start taking on action, might take action on that idea, only to find that that's really not a very good idea. It really hasn't been thought through very well. And so this proverb of Proverbs 21.5 is illustrated in chapter 2 with Nehemiah having heard some very disappointing and concerning news regarding his own people uh, back in Jerusalem. He's working as a very high executive in the uh, royal family there uh, in Persia. He's a government official. He works for this Gentile ruler. And he begins to seek God and has been seeking God in prayer in chapter 1 when he heard all this concern about his fellow Jews and the disaster that they faced ongoing back in his homeland. And Nehemiah knew that the problem was complex. And there was widespread issues that needed to be addressed back in his hometown of Jerusalem. But before he did anything, he prayed. And that was our last sermon or two in looking at chapter 1. And obviously prayer is always the first and highest priority of God's people. That when we run into a problem, that is to be the way of life for the people of God. We are to pray, we are to seek God. And because of the gospel, thankfully, we have access to God. We're not living life on our own, but we have a God who is on agreeable terms to us, on, on pleasant terms with us, and therefore he is abundantly available for help in trouble. And our king that we serve is gracious, and those who come to him through Jesus Christ our Lord, we receive mercy, we, we find grace to help us in our time of need. And so therefore that's why we as a church we're calling us to a day of fasting and prayer. Uh, this coming Wednesday, I hope you will, Participate on whatever level you're able to participate in. Nobody's going to be asking you how are you fasting and how long you've been fasting. That's not the point. We're just asking that you begin to show in some way, some tangible way, that you truly are earnestly seeking God for his help, his intervention in our life, personally, as your own life, and in the life of our church. Well, then what happens then after we've prayed? Are we just to jump into action, expend all our energy, begin to sort of do as much as we possibly can do, without ever giving much thought as to what we're doing? Well, let's look at Nehemiah and begin to sort of glean a couple of insights from this chapter. Chapter 2, verse 1. It came about in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before the king, and I took up the wine and gave it to the king, and now I had been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, Why is your face sad, though you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. And then I was very much afraid. And I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? Then the king said to me, what would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. I don't know if you underline your Bible, but I would underline, I would highlight that on your electronic Bible. So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, If it please the king, and if your servant has found favor with you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will your journey be, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I gave him a definite time. 
And I said to the king, If it please the king, let brethren be given me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river, that they may, know me, that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the houses to which I will go. And the king granted them to me, because the good hand of my God was on me. And then I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river, and I gave them to the king's letters. <clears throat> now the king had sent with me officers and army and horsemen. And when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about it, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. And I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. And I rose in the night and, a few, and I had a few men with me and I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem. And there was no animal with me except the animal on which I was riding. And I went out at night by the valley gate in the direction of the dragon's well and to the refuse gate, inspecting the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and its gates, which were consumed by fire. And then I passed on to the fountain gate and the king's pool, and there was no place for my mount to pass. And so I went up at night in the ravine and inspected the wall, and I entered the valley gate again and returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done, nor had I as of yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and those who did the work. And then I said to them, You see the bad situation we're in, that Jerusalem is desolate, its walls, gates are burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me, and also about the king's words, which he had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise and build. And so they put their hands to the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard it, they mocked us and despised us and said, what is this thing you're doing? And they rebelled. Are you rebelling against the king? And so I answered them and said to them, the God of heaven will give us success. And therefore we, his servants, will rise and build. But you have no portion, right, or memorial in Jerusalem. In our moments together this morning, I want us to consider maybe a couple of prayerful steps that we can take of preparation in addressing problem situations that arise. First thing I'd like to suggest in this text is an insight that is true of all of us that we need to be sensitive to the leading of God. Be sensitive to the leading of God. When Nehemiah heard the bad news, he did not just immediately drop everything and then just head on out to Jerusalem to help rebuild the walls that were torn down, but he waited on God's timing. He prayed, it's true. He carried out his regular duties there as a cupbearer, a person who's tasting the wine, making sure the king is not poisoned. He did that for 12 weeks before what we read about here in chapter 2. And during the time of he's waiting upon the Lord, it's clear that his demeanor was not the same. It was evident that the concern that he had in his heart about his own people began to be evidenced by his own appearance. And so he looked like he's sort of down in the dumps. He didn't have the same smile on his face. He's, he's, he's got a heaviness of spirit about him. And so the king, when he notices that, realized, wait a minute, 
the guy who tastes my wine, he doesn't look like being in a very happy mood. I wonder if he's out to get me because he gets very nervous if his most trusted guy is not in a good frame of mind. So he asks some questions. He finds out what's going on and he inquires about why he's so forlorn. And in exchange of all these questions and answers to Nehemiah, the king of Persia grants through him, through the king's permission, God, in a sense, opens a door for him. An open, ter- op- an open door, an opportunity arises for him to travel back to the city of Zion and to build the, rebuild those broken down walls. And Nehemiah waits, has been waiting now for what must have seemed a long time, week after week after week after week, and finally the door opened and he knew here it was my time to go. Notice verse 8 of chapter 2. The gracious hand of God was on me. Nehemiah realized that God had ordained that exchange between himself and the king. It was God who had opened the door of opportunity for him to be involved with his brethren there in Jerusalem. I wonder if I think about that a little bit. Where is God, from your perspective, where is God when you're facing that problem situation in your life or the challenges that we face here as a church? Where is God? Is he off on the sidelines somewhere? Is he too distracted and interested in other things and other people and the big important things of the world as opposed to what's happening in your life or mine? What is our view of our problem when it comes to God and his involvement? Do you assume that God is just not on the scene, that things happen in this world in a naturalistic way, that there is really no intervention of God in what's happening in your world. Things just happen by chance. It's all random. Many people, of course, follow that particular view. That's not a, a Christian view. Other people would say, oh, yes, I'm a Christian. I do believe that there's a God who does exist. But they hold to a sort of a deistic view of God. That is, God sort of winds up the clock of the world and he just lets it go, and it's just winding, unwinding on its own slowly over time. And God really is no longer directly involved in the world. But I want to say to you, my friends, don't be fooled. None of us live our lives held in the grip of blind fortune. None of us are living with just the forces of chance or luck or fate. But everything that happens to us falls under God's divine plan. Now, Nehemiah, you'll notice in verse 4, believed that he did have a sense of God is active, God is listening, God is aware, God is there. And you'll notice in verse 4, without even saying anything to anybody around him, he's just lifting his quick arrow prayer to God. He probably says, God, help me. Help me know what to say here. He's praying. And look at how God's providential control is evidence to him. He sees that God is working in his own situation as an answer to prayer. And I just put in your notes again the reminder of God's control that really is uh, in place in this world. In the physical world, Psalm 104 reminds us that God causes the grass to grow, which means he's controlling the weather, all the factors that produce any kind of vegetation and growth. Uh, for cultivation. It's God who is at work in all those situations. It is God who is in control of the affairs of the nations. 
And that's significant in our world, isn't it? Because we are an international community anymore. And what one nation does impacts other nations. And so we see all these big factors. Psalm 22 reminds us that the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. You don't read that in Newsday. You don't read that online in the news under Yahoo or whatever you read. But God is ruling over the nations, whether we realize it or not. Even God rules over the universe. Psalm 103 says the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. I love this theme that we find in Nehemiah and in its sister book called Ezra. Both of them are fairly contemporary. They're both written at a very similar time in biblical history. And one of the themes you find in these books is the sovereign hand of God governing over all of life. Turn back just to Ezra, the previous book, and you'll notice in chapter 7, verse 6, the hand of the Lord was upon him. Chapter 7, verse 9, the good hand of his God was upon him. Chapter uh, 7, verse 28, the hand of the Lord my God was upon me. Chapter 8, verse 18, the good hand of our God was upon us. Verse 22, the hand of our God is favorably disposed to all those who seek him. Verse 31, and the hand of our God was over us. That's, that is a way in which the writer is expressing the fact that he's consciously aware God is moving, God is at work, God is there, uh, they're sensitive to the fact that it's his timing when he's working. I'm convinced that it's very easy and subtle to lose sight of the fact that God is orchestrating events, the events that take place in our lives providentially. It's easy to become a person who becomes skeptical and realize, well, life is all up to me. i got to make it happen because I can't rely on God. But what we're seeing here is that faith expresses itself with a, with a sensitivity to the leading of God. It's a strong temptation, it seems to me, that we all have to make our plans happen whether God opens the door or not. But there's a great wisdom in following God's providential hand rather than forcing His hand to move faster than what he may choose to do. It certainly is true when we try to evangelize unbelievers. Haven't we all known a situation where we, we are put in a situation with someone who's an unbeliever around us, we engage in conversation, and before you know it, we're moving too quickly. We're moving without even listening and understanding where this person is coming from, what their thoughts and assumptions are, and whether they even believe there is a God. We're immediately launching into a presentation of A, B, C, D, and E, and this is what you've got to believe. And oftentimes we also have people around us that we know and are in relationship with in which we have tried to push them to respond to the gospel too quickly out of our zeal, out of our love for them, yes, but oftentimes not waiting for the Spirit to work and waiting for the Spirit to open a door of opportunity to begin to speak to that person when they are receptive, when they're willing to hear, when it seems appropriate at times. And so being willing to be patient as we wait for God to work in the hearts of those that we care and love about who do not know Christ. I'm thankful that uh, in the last two weeks I got a call from someone who was informed me that I'd been praying and was aware of a situation where this uh, fellow's uh, adult child was living in a compromised situation in terms of their lifestyle and their situation of life there. And, and he called to say, I just want you to know that this 
improper relationship that my child is in has now crumbled and fallen apart. And this person had been praying about that. I had been praying about that. And I thought, that's awesome. I mean, I'm sorry that they're, you know, hit the rocks with this relationship. But that's a good thing. And the hand of God was moving here. And so that's a, you can rejoice in seeing that happen. And so realizing that we can't make things happen to change some concerns regarding our children, but we can pray about it and look and watch, see what God is doing. I would also say when it comes to our own church and trying to see ministries restored, we want to see those restored when it's a time in which God, we sense God is providing and raising up the people where we sense this is a time to move forward in that regard. And so we live by faith. We live by confidence of being sensitive to the fact that God is the one we want to follow his leading in different situations of life. There's another principle here that I think is not an easy one to swallow. I'm just going to be honest with you. Uh, this is one that grates against all of us on some level because it has to do with authority. You'll notice that in this situation, the challenge is responding to problems around us is that we often want to act the way that we think it ought to go in our own time, and we often find it something that is difficult to do to realize that our timing of things might have to be dependent on what someone else who has authority over us gives approval to. For example, you'll notice that Nehemiah in his requesting permission in a sense to leave his job and go back and get involved, he's, it's up to the king, whatever he decided. And so he does so in a way in which he's not trying to sidestep this authority. He's yielding to the one who is over him in the Lord and realize that Nehemiah knew what needed to be done, and he was just waiting until he got the proper permission to go. Look at verse 5. If it please the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Verse 7. If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the provinces. This approach, I believe, honored God. Because what he's saying here is, Yielding is part of God's design for a problem-filled world we live in. We have to yield. We have to, we have to submit and subject our plans to God and His authority and to those over us. Turn with me to page 1440 in your pew Bible, 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter 2. Peter, who oftentimes was rather lacking in a patient spirit to respond appropriately, he oftentimes jumped into action before he even thought twice, is writing to his fellow believers who are now starting to deal with some consequences of what it means to be a believer and, and people really sort of persecuting and making it difficult for those believers, even if they did the right thing. And so he says in 1 Peter chapter 2, a very interesting, verse, verse 13 and 14, he says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors. Honor all men, verse 14, verse 17 says, Fear God and honor the king. Now we know there are limitations to that. We know that there are situations where we are told that we must do something that is clearly against the revealed will of God, and we know there are times in which that's appropriate to not yield to that authority, but in a general principle, when we live under those authority over us, we are to yield to that up until those limits. 
And admittedly, that's not an easy thing to do. We are to submit to those that God has placed over us. But that's exactly what God calls us to do, even though it grates against us. So whether it's our boss or whether it's uh, a situation if we're a wife and we're submitting to our husband's headship, whether we as members of a church submitting to a church leadership, there are times in which it's very difficult to yield, to submit to those that God has sovereignly placed over us. It's so easy to take the matters into our own hands, to usurp the authority that God has put in charge. But ultimately it boils down to this. Do we trust God to guide and to direct the one who has authority over us in accordance with God's divine timetable? And sometimes that means that if we sense we are not relating to the authority over us in a respectful way, it oftentimes means that in our heart we are expressing our sense of frustration toward God that he's not giving us the green light to move ahead. And so therefore I'm going to express my disrespect toward the fact that this person's holding me back. And so I just would like to make a practical thought here and speak to those of us who are perhaps as children or young people living under the authority of our parents. As you say, well, I've got a lot of problem situations in my life. I'm not waiting around for my parents. They're old fogies. They are so old-fashioned. They don't understand the kind of issues that I'm dealing with in my life. That's probably true on some level. We always seem to be a little bit behind the curve and keeping up with everything that our children are involved in. But I would also just remind you that God has placed them over you for a reason. And as an act of submission before God, I would encourage you as uh, if you're a son or daughter to your parents that you live with and under their authority, that you treat them with courtesy. Treat them with respect as Nehemiah it did to the one over him. And the same goes to us as adults as well. The Lord has called his people to submit our plans to him and he calls us to submit, in a sense, our intentions to trust Him, to open the door of approval for those who are in authority over us. And sometimes that means there may be some delays. Sometimes that means that things don't move as quickly as you wish they would. And that's learning what it is to trust God and to submit to His ultimate authority. There's a third principle here in this text, and I want to quickly touch on that because I think that this is a point that is so practical and so helpful for all of us. And that is that Nehemiah anticipated conditions that required steadfastness, not smooth sailing. As you read through chapter 2, it became obvious that Nehemiah anticipated, when he was headed out here, that there were going to be problems and difficulties. He had prayed, yes, he had done some planning, but he had also adjusted his hopes to include this strong likelihood that he would run into obstacles, he'd run into hardships as he headed out. He expected rough sailing, or he expected, in a sense, bumps along the road. And so he asked the king, verse 7, for letters that he could verify that he had permission to do what he was setting out to do. And he didn't assume that just because he prayed about the situation, and just because God had providentially opened the door to him to go back, that God would somehow guard him from having to face afflictions and trials and troubles. Sometimes we think that's the way it's going to be. That if God has opened the door for me, I'm not going to have any problems ahead. Well, be careful of that kind of thinking. Nehemiah did not 
have unrealistic expectations. See, the Word of God is clear. Job 5 says, Man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. You know, sure as you, you light a good campfire, you're going to see those red sparks just flying upward as just that's what happens and that wood is combustible and the heat rises up there. Well, we're, no one of us is immune from hassles, difficulties, and trials. And our best laid plans, when we ponder them and we've prayed over them, they can and they often do get detoured. Or at least they run headlong into obstacles as we move forward. And so it didn't take long for Nehemiah. He arrives in Jerusalem. He takes some time to look things over. And look what we get in verse 18. Just such an encouraging verse. It's a wonderful, a wonderful upbeat. Uh, wow, this is really advancement. This is progress. This is all the things you would hope for. I told them how the hand of God had been upon me, uh, sorry, favorable to me, and also about the king's words, which he spoke to me. And they said, let's arise, let's build. So they put their hand to the good work. Oh, that's a great thing. Everybody jumps in and gets involved. But then look at 19 and 20. Here are these three guys hear about it, and they start making fun of them. They indicate clearly there's an animosity toward them that's very evident, raising questions, questioning the fact that they seem unauthorized to do these things. And next thing you know, they've got people problems. Not too surprising, right? Jesus' earthly ministry, he himself conducted himself perfectly, not doing anything wrong and proper. But boy, did he run into anything but smooth sailing, right? He had to deal with all kinds of problem people throughout his three years of public ministry. He had to deal with religious leaders and argumentative and com competitive disciples of his own who were trying to see who was the greatest. And when Jesus was not treated appropriately, when he was dealt with unjustly, it says he entrusted himself to his Father and moved forward. And steadfastness is one quality required when addressing problem situations. So I just want to summarize by saying this. When the gospel advances, and when God's people are on mission, and we're moving forward, seeking to do the work of God, whether at home or whether at church or whether we're serving God in the workplace or where we are in school, you shouldn't be surprised that you run into opposition, that we run into things that are oftentimes roadblocks for us. That's what Paul ran into. It was called Satan. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we read of Thessalonian believers. He says, we wanted to come to you, and yet Satan thwarted us. There's an enemy involved in today's world. And so Paul not only had to deal with Satan and his opposition, and I'm not sure exactly how he knew exactly it was Satan doing that, but he drew that conclusion under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And Paul also had to deal with difficult people at times that shouldn't surprise us that we have to do the same. 2 Timothy 4, Alexander the, Cooper, the coppersmith did much harm to me the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Be on your guard against him yourself, he said, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. You say, well, yeah, I know I've run into some challenging people in my life situation. Then notice how Nehemiah responds. Nehemiah has been a spirit of prayer. Nehemiah has been relying and sensitive to the spirit of God and how he's working and God opening doors and closing doors and Here's Nehemiah submitting to the authority. Look at his response in verse 20. The God of heaven, he said to these opponents, the God of heaven will give us success. 
And therefore we, his servants, will arise and build. Here he says, I'm aware that God is going to be working in our midst. I'm aware that I'm involved in spiritual battle. It's very obvious to me. But I'm not going to treat you as the enemy. I'm going to move ahead with what God calls me to do, knowing I'm going to run into problems along the way and that God's still on the throne. What a great great way to deal with any kind of problem we run into. Let's pray. I'd like to just take a moment and want you to think in your own heart and life about your situations, your problem, situations that are unfolding. Is it a problem within your family? Is it a problem with one of your own children or one of your, with your spouse? Is it a problem with your ex? Is it a problem with one of your parents? Is there a problem situation that's arisen at work? or among your larger relatives in your family, or even in our church family. I want to ask the question, can you really honestly say, would you tell to God that you are trusting His work in this situation? That you believe He is on the scene? That you can rely upon Him? And that you can know that His timing will be perfect? And you're willing to wait on Him? Are you seeking God? Are you crying out to Him, even in quick little prayers throughout the day? And are you trusting God to help you with the inevitable difficulties, trials, and problems in whatever way you try to get involved in what you're facing to know that there will be further things you'll have to face and not to give up? Father in heaven, we pray that you might Give us a fresh glimpse of your greatness, of your sovereign control over all the areas of life. Help us, Lord, not to waver in doubt and unbelief and to question whether you are involved or even care to be involved in our lives. Father, forgive us for oftentimes doubting your love and your concern and your presence and your power. We pray, Father, that you might help us to again be armed with your word, aware that you are a God who works mysteriously in ways that we don't always always see exactly what, how it unfolds. Lord, help us to trust you in regard in, in situations where we have to submit ourselves to earthly authorities. It's not easy. Help us, Father, to be patient. Help us to know that you are a God who forgives us when we've messed up and run forward and try to make things happen in our own strength. Help us, Father, know you're gracious and forgiving and that you're able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we can ask or imagine. Fill us with that confidence, we pray, as we step forward to face the spiritual battles that are all around us. Through the power of your word, taking up the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the belt of truth, the shoes of the gospel of good news, And to also be aware, Lord, that we have the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.